0: But right now, every week at City Light, we spend some time looking at God's word because we believe that in the Bible, God speaks to us. And so Janelle is going to come and read to us now from Matthew 6, 5 to 14.
1: And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in the secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heed by empty phrases that the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, and you will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others, others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses
0: well good morning and welcome i'm jeremy and the lead pastor here great to have you with us this morning and uh, if you are brand new to this church or to church generally, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for making the effort to be here. It's only our third week here at the school, and so we'll keep tweaking things as we go. And, uh, and even meeting a couple of you this morning, there are a couple of things we can tweak in terms of letting people know we're down here at the high school. But well done if you've made it here. Uh, and if you are here and, and have questions about who Jesus is or you're just finding out about it, I hope that as we move through the Sermon on the Mount you will see what we see in Jesus, that is that life is found in Him. And if you are here and a follower of Jesus, we pray that you'll be strengthened as we open God's Word together. Because as we've mentioned each week, we're moving through the Gospel of Matthew and through a section called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus lays out some pretty hard-hitting teachings. Last week, He talked about giving to the poor. And this week, He's hitting up the idea of prayer. And what He's going to say to us is that prayer is radically God-centered. Prayer is radically God-centered. See, we are a reasonably, no, I'll say we are an extremely self-conscious culture. I don't know if you know the word awkward, but technically the the word literally means kind of backwards or wrong way round or difficult to fit. And then by extension, awkward can be used about anything that's difficult to handle. But the way that we use it in our culture is when you're talking about an experience that's difficult to handle, an uncomfortable experience. And most specifically, what we're talking about is an experience that's extremely self-conscious. So think about the kind of context you might use the word awkward in. One of the main ones would be something like public speaking. Oftentimes when people do public speaking for the first time, and that is, by the way, the number one fear for Australians, but what, what often happens when you're doing it is it becomes awkward because it's a very self-conscious experience. So people who've had hands all of their life suddenly realise they have hands and don't know what they normally do with them. And try and read tutorials about the fact that you're supposed to leave them by your side because that's the most comfortable position. But it feels very awkward, right? You feel self-conscious. Or let's say you're not that great at singing and, uh, and a banger comes on the radio and you are singing your little heart out until you realize the mortifying truth that your window was open just a crack and that people can hear you and people can judge you and suddenly you feel awkward, you feel incredibly self-conscious. Most of the humor in our culture is observational humor. Memes or even you know generally the shows, most of the shows that come out since The Office basically have been some version of observational humor and the central joke is look how self-conscious we can be. Look how uncomfortable it is when you see someone do something mortifying and publicly embarrassing and you feel that for them even though they don't really exist. Our culture is incredibly self-conscious and you can start to think that this is just a basic truth of human existence, but it's not. This is not how other cultures live. We are a particularly self-conscious culture. Uh, we've been to, to school recitals in other cultures in other countries where kids will give an item that's terrible. They cannot sing and no one cares, no one even bats an eyelid. We went to one where it would be literally the same kind of dance for each item one after the other, the same song would come on and we'd look around almost like expectantly to see other people experiencing this as just as awkward as we are and no one cares because in other cultures they're not quite as self-conscious as we are and the reason for it is we live in a culture where the self is the ultimate reality. And so we have trained ourselves to pay an incredible amount of attention to ourselves, to how we appear, to how others perceive us, to how we come across. And we've got it down to a fine art, but we are an incredibly self-conscious culture because we believe at the center of reality is myself. Where I'm going to find meaning and reality and authenticity is in the self. So we pay so much attention to the self. And that's why what Jesus says is going to be counterintuitive to us. Because what Jesus is about to teach us about prayer is that it's radically God-centered. It's not just that it's other-centered, but it's other-being-centered. It's centered on the reality of God himself. And if you don't get this, Jesus says you'll never get prayer. And he's going to call out the ways in which his culture did not understand how God-centered prayer was. But it's going to speak to us and our cultural moment as well. And so I'm going to pray that as we open God's word in Matthew chapter 6, that he'd be speaking directly to our hearts. And, and because we're looking at something in prayer, I'd encourage you that as we do this, that you wouldn't pray with some kind of half attention, but that we'd pray knowing that we come before a holy God who hears our prayers. So let's pray together. Father, we praise you that because of Jesus, we can know that you hear our prayers. Dear a God who is a father who loves to answer prayer and who delights in his children praying to him. So we ask that as we open your word, that it wouldn't be like another week where we just hear a sermon, where we hear your word taught, and we go away unchanged. But that we'd pay attention to Jesus' words, knowing that He speaks truth and life, and that we might walk away transformed, that we might not do this as individuals, but as a community to encourage one another in the love of Jesus, to live out what Jesus said and taught. And Father, we pray this knowing that this is your will for us in Jesus. Amen. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples, and this is his account, historical account, of Jesus' birth, his life, his teaching, his ministry, finally his brutal death and execution, and then his resurrection. And we're in a section called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus, funnily enough, is giving a sermon on a mount. And there's a large crowd gathered around him to hear what Jesus is teaching about. People have heard that he's done this or that, and so a bit of a crowd has come to see. all right, what is it to do with this Jesus? Why is he getting so much hype? And here Jesus is laying out what it's going to be like to be one of his disciples, that is one of his followers. And last week he was teaching on prayer, on on, on giving to the poor. And this week he's going to teach on prayer. And the first thing that he's going to teach is that God-centered prayer is about meeting God, not winning others' approval. Look at what he says. In Matthew 6, 5-6, he says, And when you pray, you must not pray like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who, is in, who sees in secret will reward you. Again, like last week, Jesus gives a warning. He says, don't be like the hypocrites. And as we looked at last week, the word hypocrite in, in Greek means actor or someone who would potentially wear a mask. And he says, don't be like someone who gives an outward appearance, but inwardly it doesn't match up with the reality of your life. And he said, when it comes to giving it to the poor don't be the kind of person who, when you give to the poor, you make a big deal about it, you let everybody know about it, you gram it or whatever else it is. He says, do it even in secret for the sheer reward of just knowing that your heavenly Father who saved you and loves you just delights in you doing that. And he follows on the same theme this week. He's speaking to a cultural group who would have, as part of their religious life, prayed regularly. And Jesus is assuming that they're going to pray, that if they're going to follow him, they're going to be people who pray. And so he says to them, when you pray, not if you pray, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. And what are they like? He says they love to pray loudly on street corners and in the synagogue. Now this might not be something that you would immediately relate to because we don't live in a culture where people pray on street corners. It certainly would draw some attention to you. I'm not sure if it would be favorable, but if you did it, I'm sure people would pay attention. But in Jesus' culture, this was a habit the religious leaders would pray on street corners as a demonstration that they were religious leaders. Not only that, but they would pray in something called synagogue, which was like, in some ways, a gathering like this, probably not in a high school at that point, but they would gather together, they would hear God's word taught, and someone would pray. It was a Jewish gathering that would happen on a Sunday, a Saturday, not a Sunday. And Jesus is saying, don't be like hypocrites who love praying on street corners, They love praying in synagogues, and they love to be heard by people. But really, that's their main reward. Their main motivation, he is saying, their main driving desire is to win approval from others, to look like people who love God rather than to be people who love God. They want to pray because people who pray love God, and they want to look like people who love God. But ultimately, Jesus says, they've received their reward in full. They've got their nod of approval. They've got other people thinking of them as religious, but that's all they're going to get out of it. And that is not what prayer is about. See, Jesus warns us that there is a human propensity to hollow out our behaviors for the sake of appearance. We have a friend who's in the fashion industry who recounted this happening on multiple occasions where they would go to fancy restaurants. I don't know I don't know the last time I said fancy. That just came out. Anyway, to go to, go to expensive, exclusive restaurants and she was saying it's funny a lot of the people who would go there for these dinners cuz they're networking dinners would take photos of their dinner for Instagram and then wouldn't finish the meal or would even hardly touch it. And you think, wow, that's 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 a crazy behavior, isn't it? That you would go to some of the best to eat some of the best food in the world potentially and not really even actually be there to enjoy the food but just to get a photo of it so that you can put it on your Instagram so you can get likes for it so that you can be seen as the kind of person who goes to flash restaurants. But of course, this has been happening for a while, we're familiar with this phenomenon. When Instagram was first created, it was mainly mainly an app just for using filters on photos and it had a sharing function as well. But once the like button got added, we saw a massive change in human behavior. What happened was initially, behavior drove likes. So you would do something, you get a photo of it, you think ah, other people might like this, you post it up and then it would get some likes. And then obviously quite naturally people realised, hey that's an experience that I like. When people actually like my photos, I enjoy that. But then after a while there was a tipping point where instead of behaviour driving likes, it actually swapped around and likes started driving behaviour. So that people would do things or hang out with people or go to places that potentially they did not even enjoy in order to get the likes which came later. And so we went from behavior driving likes to likes driving behavior. And so then you can get people going to a restaurant who don't even want to eat the food because the main point is to get a photo of it so that other people will think of you a certain way. It's behavior that's been entirely emptied of meaning and connection. And you know what? Jesus calls it out in the ancient world as well. This isn't just a problem with Gen Z. This is a human problem. Jesus warns that even during a time where access to mirrors, let alone social media, was limited. He says there was still the propensity to do things in order to be seen a certain way rather than to do things for their natural and proper reward. Jesus warns them. He says, don't be like the hypocrites who the only reason they pray is because they want to be seen as praying people. He says God-centered prayer will be prayer that wants to connect with God and not just win others' approval. And the truth is that all of us can be prone to this. How many times have we done this? If you were here and a follower of Jesus, how many times have you prayed only paying half attention to the reality of God and the other half to how you sound as you pray? Did I say something stupid? Have I said the right things for this particular church context? Have I said things that make me sound like a mature Christian or am I just showing everyone that I'm foolish and I'm new at this and I'm silly? This kind of thing might drive you to pray more in a church context. You're pretty eloquent, and people tend to pat you on the back about how your prayers were, and so it drives you to pray. Or it might be the opposite. Maybe the reason you never pray in your small group is because you are worried about what people think of you. Jesus says it's the wrong heart for prayer. You're to pray for an audience of one. Prayer, Genuine prayer cares only about connecting with God and not what other people think of us, whether better or worse. Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites, who pray just paying attention to what people will think of them. He says, Pray knowing that your Heavenly Father who is in secret knows you and loves you. Pray to connect with your Heavenly Father. One Puritan said, What a man is on his face before God, this he is and nothing more. If you're to strip everything back, all the outward externals away from your life, what you are in prayer before God is the mark of your Christianity. That's the caution that Jesus first gives. And the second one is this. It says, God centered prayer wants to get God and not just get things from God. Look at what he says. Matthew 6, 7 or 08. It says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He's saying, When you do pray, and it is just you and God don't heap up empty phrases, he says, like the Gentiles do. Now, he was a Jewish person, and Gentile was just a shorthand way of saying anyone who is not Jewish. And he says to them, don't pray like the other religions in the ancient Near East. In Jesus' context, the other religions believed that if you named all of the gods when you prayed, you had a better chance of getting heard. It's kind of like if you're in a queue when you're trying to get through to customer service. If you could name all the gods, maybe you'd get bumped up a few. And not only that, But if you named all of the gods, and you named them multiple times each, you'd be even more likely to have your prayers heard or answered. And so oftentimes, praying in his culture and other religions could sound like just a lot of words over a long period of time, and this seemed very holy and very devout. But Jesus says, it's emptiness. He says that's not how you're to pray. He says, you are not praying to some impersonal force or you're not praying to some vault in the sky that if you just say the right words, it'll unlock the the store code to the heavenly treasures. He says, that is not what your God is like. He's like a father who knows what you need. So don't come to him with rehearsed rituals and repeated lines that don't mean anything. Don't come to him with incantations and chants that seem outwardly really holy and really devout, but inwardly mean nothing to you. No, he says, come to him like your heavenly father, like a dad who loves you, who knows what's good for you and is for you. One who you're not trying to manipulate just to get stuff from them. He says, God-centered prayer wants to get God, wants relationship with God, not just to get stuff from him. In Jesus' culture... Praying to the gods or doing certain things or certain rituals was a way of either making sure that the gods didn't get angry with you or that they would be pleased with you and they'd give you rain or provision or a family or whatever it was that you were wanting. And Jesus says, No, that's not what prayer's about. It's not about divine manipulation. You're not to learn a certain code in order to manipulate God. Know that God is your heavenly Father, so come to Him like a child. Don't be like the religions around them, He says who heap up phrases. And then he goes on to say, the God-centered prayer starts with the holiness of God. Look at what he says at the beginning of maybe one of the most famous sections in church circles anyway, that Jesus teaches on prayer. He says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you grew up in a church culture, Saying those lines might be a little bit like running down a hill. Once you start the first one, it just the rest of it just rolls off. And it's ironic that after having just had the teaching from Jesus to say, don't heap up phrases and just repeat things over and over, that this is probably in the church context the most repeated phrase from Jesus on prayer ever. But here, Jesus says your prayers are first to be marked by a desire to see God honored as holy. He says, hallowed be your name. That's not a word that you use in... I, I I would be very surprised if anyone here has used the word hallowed this week. We very rarely use it. But what it literally means is to treat as or regard as holy. The teaching of the Bible is that God is holy, that he is other, that he is set apart, that he is different. What makes God God is that he is not like us. There are many ways in which we can relate to God in ways that are similar, like the fact that he's a father. We can kind of get that. But there are many ways in which God is not like us. Like the fact that He does not have a beginning. Like the fact that He does not need anything outside of Himself to exist. He's not contingent like we are. Like the fact that He's all-knowing or all-powerful. We don't know what that's like. And there are many ways in which God is not like us. He is other. He is a holy God. He is a God who is, it says in Scripture, a consuming fire. That sinful people cannot simply walk up to God, strut up to Him, and start a conversation. And prayer, Jesus says, starts with the sense that God is holy and other. In a, in a book that hideous strength, which is written by C.S. Lewis, it's the third in a in a in what he calls the cosmic trilogy. And if you're looking for something to read over winter, I, if you haven't got into this from C.S. Lewis, you should. And in the third book, one of the characters encounters God. And here, the character describes what it's like to come before a holy God. And I think this is Lewis's attempt to describe what it might be like to meet God. And he says it like this. Quick agitation seized them, a kind of boiling and bubbling in the mind and heart, which shook their bodies also. It went into a rhythm of such fierce speed that they feared that their sanity might be shaken into a thousand fragments. And then it seemed like this had actually happened. But it did not matter. For all the fragments, needle-pointed desires, brisk merriments, links-eyed thoughts, went rolling to and fro like glittering drops and reunited themselves. And now it came. It was fiery, sharp, bright, and ruthless, ready to kill, ready to die, outspeeding light, not as mortals imagined it not even as it had been humanized for them since the incarnation of the Word, but the translunary virtue, fallen upon them direct from the third heaven, unmitigated. They were blinded, scorched. They thought it would burn their bones. They could not bear that it should continue. They could not bear that it should cease. This is one human attempt at describing what it might be like to come before a holy God and not be destroyed. That this is what it might be like to meet God, pure being, The origin of everything. If you do not have a sense of the holiness and glory of God, your prayers will always be just a little bit vanilla, won't they? That our prayers will shrink to the size of our God. And Jesus says what's to mark your prayer at the very first point is a sense of the utter holiness of God. The majesty of God. The fact that you are able to come before this God and not tremble, but actually call Him Father. This is what's to mark your prayer. That when you come before Him, it's not about just muttering phrases or piling up words, but actually knowing that the Holy God of the universe is your Heavenly Father who loves you. Our prayers are to start with this petition that our Heavenly Father hallowed be your name. That your name would be holy that I would know you as holy, that others would honor you as holy, that the world would know you as their God. Prayer is to be marked by a, a sense of the holiness of God. And then what he says flows on from that, your kingdom come and your will be done. Well, of course, if God is like this, then he is owed glory. The prayer that God's name would be honored as holy is not that we would exaggerate his name to the point that other people would regard it as holy, but that God would be seen for who he is. The one who made us, And to whom all glory and worship belongs. And Jesus here is not saying this is what you should pray. So every time you pray, you say these words. He's just said, don't pile up phrases. Don't pray like the other religions. But he's saying this is how we should pray. Our prayers should start with God Himself, His very nature. That the first thing we do when we come before God in prayer is to acknowledge how great and glorious He is, and how how worthy He is of our worship and the worship of others. That our prayer would be God-centered. And then Jesus teaches us that God-centered prayer does not presume. look at what he says. Matthew 6:11-14. "Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil." God-centered prayer does not presume. Human-centered prayer only goes to God when we're in trouble I don't know if this was the attitude that you grow up with in terms of God even if you weren't in a, a Christian household or a particularly religious family you may have had the sense that if there is a God out there he's kind of like the military or at the very least triple zero you only really call them when there's a major emergency you may have heard some recordings over time when they of kids calling up triple zero I don't know if you've ever seen any of these on YouTube or anything but it's quite in some ways, I guess it's funny. I know it's a, I know it's a grand race, waste of resources and whatever. But if you just take that out of it and just consider it on its own merit, it is quite funny when kids call up and say things like their brother is picking on them or, um, or the fact that so-and-so won't share something with them. And you're like, oh, wow, that's, that's so out of step, isn't it? Like you don't call triple zero for that kind of problem. But isn't it the case that oftentimes that's how we relate to God? You only call in the big guns when you're really out of your depth. Really, basically, life is is kind of functionally deistic, that God kind of wound up the universe and he set things in motion, and so really, I'm on my own, but if I really find myself out of my depth, I'll call call the red phone and I'll, I'll call in the big guns just if I'm overwhelmed. It's almost the sense that, like, if you were to call God about things like your daily bread, like your needs just for the next hour or day, he'd be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you called. Do you realize, do you know how many people have died now because I'm paying attention to you? Far out. Don't call this number again. Honestly, you'll be fine. And then hang up. But Jesus says here, no, that's not what your heavenly father is like. That actually God-centered prayer doesn't presume that we're on our own and I can sort myself out. But to say to God, God, I need you every day. That actually the fact that I have food for the next day or even week in our particular cultural moment is because of God's good provision. Not because I've chosen the right era to be born in. Not because I chose the right family or economic circumstances to be born in. But because God is good and he has provided. God-centered prayer doesn't presume upon forgiveness. Again, we live in a culture where the central assumption about humankind is that we are essentially good. And so if there is a God out there, he probably owes it to us to kind of overlook our mistakes. That even if we did sin, we're not that culpable for it. And if God's out there, he'll understand. No, Jesus as a God-centered prayer understands that forgiveness is an unentitled blessing. That we did not deserve forgiveness and yet he provided Jesus to die for our sin that we might be forgiven. And that every day... We would ask forgiveness knowing that he will grant it, not because we're entitled to it, but because Jesus has won it for us. Not only that, but it calls us to live out this reality by forgiving others, that we wouldn't just be recipients of grace, but that having been transformed by the grace of God, we would then impact the lives of others and go on to forgive others, to cancel debts the way that God has canceled ours. That we wouldn't presume upon our own goodness, but pray that God would not lead us, that we wouldn't be led into temptation, and that God Himself would give us the grace to be delivered from evil. It's a humble acknowledgement of childlike uh, dependence. God, you are the one who provides food. God, you are the one who gives forgiveness. God, you are the one who gives me the grace to follow Jesus every day and every moment. See, human centeredness leads us away from prayer. And then even when we do pray, we we'll tend to pray mostly for our own interests or for things that we, realize, that we think we can't achieve on our own. But Jesus says radically God-centered prayer starts with the holiness of God and then brings every need before him, knowing that he provides for everything, that he is a good and powerful God. But even as we say this, and even as you reflect on your own prayer life, I imagine you're thinking How could anyone... I mean, this is a very pure vision of prayer. And it would be great if that was the reality for my life. But how is it that we're going to get there? In fact, think about the crowd who were standing before him. As he teaches, this is one in several teachings. They must have been sitting there thinking, who is possibly going to be able to live like this? But the truth is, it's the gospel that empowers this kind of prayer, isn't it? See, if you follow the, the gospel of Matthew all the way through, you get to Jesus' death and resurrection that he does in order to bring people to God. And it's the gospel that empowers this kind of prayer. See, it's the gospel that means that Jesus has won our approval from God, so we don't need to care about what other people think about us. I mean, it will still affect us, of course, but to know that God loves you and that nothing can separate you from the love of God leads you to be able to pray in a way where you're like, I don't really mind if other people form an opinion of me. It's the gospel that brings us into relationship with God. The highest privilege of the gospel is that you would be able to call God Father. And so you won't relate to him as some distant force, but a God who knows you and loves you. A God who is willing to send his son to die for you, who loves you that much, even while you're an enemy of Christ. It's the gospel that means we want God to be honored as holy because he's the one who saved us and not ourselves. It's the gospel that leads us away from arrogant self-dependence to humble God dependence because we know we couldn't save ourselves and we can't do anything short of that either. It's the gospel that kills presumption because we deserved judgment and instead we got grace. It's the gospel that leads to this kind of prayer, isn't it? So where do we land with this? Well, the first is if you don't know God like this, if you really don't know where you stand with God, know that in Jesus, He has done everything possible to bring you back in a relationship with God. That the way is open. That if you trust in Jesus and give your life to Him, you can know God this intimately. Because the truth is, even in a culture like ours, where we have so much that is almost automatically provided to us, we still, I think, in the deepest part of our soul, have an understanding that our lives are incredibly fragile. You know, a lot of the research that came out last year around life under COVID, even in a place like Australia, where we were spared really the worst extremes of this pandemic. But one of the interesting implications for a very secular culture was that people who would not describe themselves as particularly religious found themselves praying more regularly. One theologian called Karl Barth calls it, uh, this instinct to pray, part of our incurable God sickness. That even in a secular culture, where we feel like we've largely left religion behind in the dark ages, there is still this sense in us that there is a higher being and that when it comes down to it, we need help, particularly when it comes to matters of life and death. In Jesus, there is answers. Jesus is teaching this because he's the one who's going to come and die in your place that you might be brought back in a relationship with God. And if you don't know him, what is holding you back from knowing him? I want encourage you... Jacob mentioned those slips before. If you want help and what it means to actually know God and be in relationship with Him, to be able to call God Father rather than just God or some vague concept, is our, our deepest desire to be able to help you with that. And so we'd love for you to put that down and we'd get in touch with you about that, but don't leave it any longer. Why delay? And if you are a believer, the question really stands, if you were to take away all of your outward commitments in Christianity, What would be left of your life? In fact, do you have a secret life with God? If you were to strip back all exteriors, what would you say is left? In some ways, it's not that theoretical because last year, that's pretty much what happened, wasn't it? From about, what was it, late March till somewhere in June, we were not allowed to gather physically as a church that even our small groups, as well as we could do them, were were online or via Zoom. And so basically what was left was just you and God. And I think for many people that was a soul-searching moment because when you strip back the Sunday gathering and then small groups where the church gathers, the question is, what is left of of your Christian life? Or even more than that, is there anything left? It was a very world-shattering moment for many christians i imagine but it's the question that jesus is going to ask through the sermon on the mount he's asking the question do you have a relationship with your heavenly father you know when it come, when you take away all externals and things done that other people can see what is left in terms of your actual relationship with god If the highest privilege of the gospel is that you get to know your heavenly father, is your relationship with him deep and deep enough to move through a pandemic or even another lockdown? Or was it a moment where you realized, actually, it's pretty thin? And actually, when you take away the distraction of gathering with other Christians, there's actually not that much left. Jesus is urging you now to consider what is there of your secret life with God. Because the truth is, and the reality is, if there is not much there, you may not actually know God. And it's a grace to know that before the day when you'll stand before him in judgment. Because there is still time to repent and to know Jesus and to find relationship with God. But if you do have a relationship with God, the question is, how much does it mean to you to actually meet with God one-to-one? when there's no one else around, when there's no other distractions, when it's just you and God, what is left? And to make sure that Jesus' words don't hit us idly, I've got one challenge for you this week. Now We've done this twice over a year, and the first time we did it was last year in the long weekend, just because everything was mental anyway, so we thought, let's just try something wacky. We didn't meet for a Sunday gathering, and we said to the church instead, over this weekend, this is the October long weekend, go away and we'll give you like the, some scriptures to read through, but you go and spend an hour with God by yourself and just see what happens. And we did that as a church then, we did it again in the weekend away. And I'm going to post those files up this week as, a, as an opportunity just to give you some guidance to your time with God. My challenge for you this week would be to go and spend an hour with God, just you. And if you've got kids and it's tricky to get time to actually sub one another out to give each other the time to do it, but to go and spend an hour with God, that you might live in the reality that Jesus has won for you, that you have a real relationship with your heavenly Father, that you have, because of Jesus, a heavenly Father that you can pray to and meet with, and that you might be making the most of this reality. Look, the truth is we have the time, don't we? Our Netflix accounts will show us we've got time on our hands. There's time enough. The question is, is this where we believe life is found? On our face before God. I'm going to pray that over this week, God will be deepening our relationship with him, that we might have a secret life with him that thrives. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that because of Jesus, we can know you truly. That though we'll never know you exhaustively, that you are beyond us, that you are a transcendent God, that we can know you truly as Father, that you have revealed yourself in Jesus. We pray that because of this we'd be a praying people who love to meet with you in the secret place of prayer, who love the reward of just meeting with you as our Heavenly Dad, of communing with you and enjoying fellowship with you, knowing that it's the highest privilege of the Gospel to be able to call you Father, that you have welcomed us in as your children, that we were wayward and had sinned against you, that you have taken away our sin, that you have made us new, that you love us as your own children. And Father, we pray that it would be our delight to meet with you and to pray with you and to behold you as holy. And we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.